conference was very good. I, I hope that patch went well. I've heard good things. A little busy, a little busy. What'd you say to him, dear, that he got up and stomped out? And so I, I know that numbers of you are aware of this because you're dealing with it at the family level, but evidently we're having some various forms of illness sweep through. We ended up canceling school Friday, and we have, I know, two unwell teachers, and I don't know yet. We'll be trying to track this down throughout the day for just for reference to the school, what the student count looks like. So uh, Genesis chapter 1 is where we will be. No, I was... <clears throat> sitting in the airport in St. Louis waiting to catch my flight back to Omaha, I got a snap from one of my sons-in-law of one of our grandsons who was grinning from ear to ear but wearing an oxygen mask. And so they had taken him to nebulizer. nebulizer. They had taken him to urgent care because he was having some breathing problems. So I just couldn't figure it out. You know, most people when they're sick are not grinning about it, but he, he thought the little mask thing was pretty exciting, I guess. So... So anyway, I'm thinking about going back to Detroit since you folks all seem to be under the weather. Uh, Genesis 1, and I guess I should, you know, maybe uh, I had mentioned last week that I just personally had felt like I was, I, I don't want to say struggling, but struggling. I felt like I was doing a little bit of an injustice to the subject matter of providence. I had been using heavily Piper's book, which is a tremendous book, but I just didn't feel comfortable with how I was handling it and presenting it in Sunday school. And so I'm going to just do some additional work on that and return to that at a later date. And this morning, I would just want to begin something I've been thinking about since May. Back in May, I went to a conference in Kentucky, and uh, there's a lot of discussion about Genesis and uh, we were, of course, at the at the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. And uh, <clears throat> I had been kind of thinking along these lines. I was going to preach it when I got done with Hebrews, but I think we'll spend some time in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And uh, so I just thought we'd uh, begin that uh, this morning. Let's go ahead and pray, and we will turn our attention uh, to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Father... We thank you that you have shined your light in our hearts and that we have seen the glories of Jesus Christ, our Savior, your Son. We thank you, God, for your work in us that we see the world clearly and I pray that you would give to us the grace to stand in that clearness to not be cowed and bent by the influences of the unbelieving world. And so we pray that you would teach us your word and reinforce our comprehension and understanding of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so Genesis 1, I thought we would just turn our attention this morning to the creation, very familiar territory. Um, I don't know that I'm going to say anything new 
But of course, we all know that the psalmist once asked what would happen if the foundations were destroyed. And we have, um, over the course of certainly the last 50 years in America, watched the very foundations of human civilization being attacked. Um, so that <clears throat> we now have it as almost an inarguable right and government mandate that you get to choose your own gender. And uh, <clears throat> um, that is creeping down into, if you've made a doctor's appointment recently or had to fill out medical forms, you've probably had to provide for them what your gender was assigned at birth. Um, so things things that are just virtually unconscionable. I mean, this... You know, who, who would have ever thought that, that we would have a national discussion about what a man or a woman is? Um, and we are having them with great heat and great hatred. So, uh, and we know, of course, that when the Lord got into these, um, these kinds of debated conversations about what you may or may not be able to do, that it was not uncommon for him to take us back to the creation and, and to point to the way things were originally. And so that's, this is just what we're going to do. Uh, we're just going to return to the beginning and work our way through some of these things and reorient ourselves, again, on familiar ground about what the Lord's purpose for mankind is and how he presents it. And, of course, we begin then with Genesis 1-1. <clears throat> and I want to handle the creation account, which actually is Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2, 3 or 4, depending upon how you want to divide it. We're going to stop this morning at verse number 3. In Genesis 1-1, right, what we have is, first of all, a proclamation or a declaration. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is just presented to us as a statement of fact. We have acknowledged it is almost universally accepted by Bible believers that God used Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. Nobody is there to see it. Um, so there's, there's no human record of it. Nobody, nobody was an eyewitness to the creation apart from God himself. But in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The word God is the Hebrew word Elohim. It refers to strong one or mighty one. Um, it is a description more of his power and ability. It is not a description of his name. And in fact, it isn't until Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 4 that his ability, Elohim, is coupled with his name Jehovah to provide to us the framework and the context of his creation. And yet the word God is used 35 times by my count. Um, don't count them now, but you may want to recount to make sure that I haven't missed. But God is used 35 times between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-3. God, 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 God. A being of superior power and ability created something of which he is not part. And again, we know this, we, we understand this, that, that the creation is presented to us as the one who is the creator 
being removed from that which he created. And I think that we would automatically understand that when we read in the beginning God created that this is not his beginning. This is not the beginning of God. We know that God is eternal. But that this is the beginning of of us and of things that pertain to us. It is, and we're going to come back to that because it's it's really much more than that, folks. It is it is of immense consequence eternally that God created the universe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And out of nothing, out of nothing, God created time, space, and matter. And they are all identified in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, there is time. God created the heaven, there is space, and the earth. There is matter. These are... These are the substances that unbelieving humanity wrestles through to come up with their explanation for the beginning of the universe. Right? The, the most widely accepted consensus, and I am no secular scientist, is that 13.7 billion years ago, a singularity exploded and the creation of the universe began. Um, all of which presumes in secular reasoning that time, space, and matter were already in existence. 13.7 billion years ago, there was time. In outer space, space, the singularity, matter, exploded. This is their fundamental presupposition. Ours, of course, would be substantially different. That there was nothing. There was nothing that we could relate to. There was only what, and I'm not trying to be disrespective or dismissive. I'm just saying we don't know. Whatever form of existence God had, God is a spirit. But that means only that he is invisible to our eyes. Not that he is completely and totally invisible. And his angelic beings are invisible to our eyes. That doesn't mean they're invisible. God had his existence, his eternal existence, that was completely untethered to time, space, or matter. This is why we talk about him being outside of and apart from his creation. Now, and I don't want to get into all this because they're just, I, you know, I just don't know where to go with this. Among Bible believers... Some folks take an old earth stance that God did create the earth billions and billions of years ago. And others take a young earth stance that God, about 7,000 years ago, created the earth that looks to be very old. Um, I would certainly take the young earth position. I don't know how to take the old earth position biblically but good people do. I would just give you this caution, folks, right? I would be cautious about any stance that is an attempt to accommodate unbelieving science, which is what the gap theory was. We don't really talk much about it anymore, but if you have a Schofield Bible or have read about it, that there's this 
monstrous gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and that that was the age of the dinosaurs and all of those kinds of things, and millions and millions of years passed, and here we are. I just, right? But, but the gap theory has its roots in a reaction to evolutionary theory, which took the world by storm. Charles Spurgeon said, and Spurgeon died in 1892, he said that evolution was such a ludicrous idea that it would never take hold. And how wrong he was proven to be there. So that it is no longer theory for many people, but just assumed as a statement of fact that we evolved. And so again, right? I'm, I'm, it's not my point to get into to get into that kind of argument or debate, you can read about it, the young earth and the old earth. And uh, uh, I would again refer you to this, right? Um, Wayne Grudem has a tremendous systematic theology, um, and he deals with the matter of young earth versus old earth very thoroughly and very well. And then much to my great dismay, when he gets to the end, he says, well, I'm an old earth, I'm an old earth guy because of the science which I just think is incredibly unfortunate. But he does a really good job of explaining the issues. So anyway, my point is not to get into that kind of a debate, right? God created the earth. It just seems to me that God created the earth in six days, that the creation of a mature earth is not any kind of a dilemma, and the earth is as old as God needs it to be for his purposes, not for the purposes of any scientist. So... Out of nothing, God created time, space, and matter. Now, this is just my note. I, I don't believe that I have the biblical authority to label any verse more important than any other verse, so I don't want to take that position. But I would say this, folks. If you can really submit yourself to Genesis 1.1, you will be able to come to grips with everything else the Bible says. And if you won't submit to Genesis 1.1, the Bible is never going to satisfy you in any way. Right? It is the opening barrage. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Here's where we are, and here's how we got here. God created heaven and the earth. That brings us then to the bulk of the creation account, which is Genesis 1-2 through Genesis 2-3. <clears throat> So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. <clears throat> we could ask, if we have Genesis 1-1, if we really need anything else. I mean, shouldn't that all by itself be an adequate explanation? I'm here. As far as I know, I'm living in a reality. God created that reality that should be adequate. But we have a lot more information, and so what we have here in Genesis 1-2 through Genesis 2-3 is the process of the creation. God does not simply proclaim that he created the universe. He gives us some explanation as to how he did it. And of course we know that he did it fundamentally by speaking it into existence, that he took his words and from his words created time, and from his words created space, and from his words created manner. 
Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And obviously, again, we understand this is not a throwaway verse, but this is an explanation of the world that God created. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What did he create? He created the world of Genesis 1-2. Now again, folks, I would take the position that this is not the provision for millions and millions and millions of years of time. And I will explain why I would understand it that way a little bit later. The world was without form. In Deuteronomy 32.10, that Hebrew word is translated waste. And in Job 12.24, that word is translated wilderness. The world was empty. It was a wilderness, and it was dark. This is the way that God created the world. So there is planet Earth. And if we were there, we would not be able to see anything because it's pitch black. And if we were there, we would not find a place to live because it is a wilderness, and it is without form. And void, it is empty. It has the appearance of being a gigantic wasteland. That is the way that God is describing it. This is, right, there is a process to the creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, what did he do? Well, he started with an empty, desolate, dark planet. That is... It's beginning. And yet the Spirit of God, and you may have a note in your Bible, the word moved means hovered. And the Spirit of God hovered upon it, was attentive to it, was being engaged with it. And that brings us to verse number 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So here's here's the sequence, folks. There is a process to creation that God created a planet. And it just, right, the planet that you and I know just didn't magically appear. What appeared was a dark, empty wilderness. But God was attending to it. And God spoke to it. And so to the darkness and to the disorder of what God created, he brings to it light. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters, the clouds from the oceans. 
And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so, and God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So God brings light to the darkness. And to the chaos, God brings order. God created a world that was dark. To the darkness, he brings light. God creates a world that is chaotic. It is uninhabitable. It is a wilderness of darkness, and God brings order. This is the process. And this is really what is being described, folks, through the remainder of most of the creation story, is the way that God is imposing structure and order to what was originally dark and chaotic. So, for instance, in verses 14 through 17, <clears throat> right, we, have the, we have the creation of light, which is distinct from darkness. We have the creation of land, which is distinct from the water. We return then in verse number 14. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So there is the creation of light and dark. There's the creation of land and water. And then there is light sources introduced, which serve to do several things, right? They are given there to rule. They're given to rule. The sun dominates daytime, and the moon dominates nighttime. So that even the creation, even the creation speaks to an authoritative structure that there is ruling going on. There are no people yet. By the way, there's no sin yet. But there is authority set. God is bringing light to darkness in order to chaos. They're also to measure. They're also to measure. And of course we understand this, folks, that that our world is measured in part by light sources. How long is a year? One trip around the sun. How long is a month? How long is a day? All of those things are measured by the lights. Let them, be, let them determine seasons. When does winter actually begin? What constitutes the beginning of winter? It's the shortest day of the year. What constitutes the beginning of summer? 
It's the longest day of the year. This is all part of the creation. And they're also for signs. They're also for signs. And this is looking far ahead down the road, and we will talk about this in a little bit, but there, there is a lot that is previewed in the original creation. Let them be for signs so that when we get to the very end, folks, when we, when we get to the, to, the, to the people living out the book of Revelation, what we will discover is right, that, that the sun has yet one more purpose. It doesn't just rule the light and control what is the difference between day and night. And it doesn't just measure the days and the years. It actually speaks. It actually can be used to validate God's prophecies. Because these lights are signs. Stars will fall. The moon and the sun will cease to give their light. They will be veiled. There is great symbolism to these lights. <clears throat> and as God walks down through the creation, <clears throat> excuse me, verse number 20, God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth with the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. And every winged fowl after his kind And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. So God made plants that reproduced themselves. Again, this is right, this is just the way our world is, and we think almost nothing about it. Nobody nobody thinks that when a chicken lays an egg, there's a chance it's going to grow up to be a moose. Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that when they plant tomato seeds, who knows, perhaps it will be an oak tree. One never knows when one plants a seed. Instead, we all, folks, we all understand that everything produces after its kind. Well, why is this? And this is because, right, we look back through the process of what God is doing. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. But what he created was dark, uninhabitable wasteland. And then God went to work on it. Which, by the way, I would understand to be the reason that we have a couple of words used to describe. We have creation and forming, fashioning. That God goes to work on this creation that he has made. 
And now I'm going to introduce light to it, and I'm going to divide light from dark. And there will be light sources, and I'm going to, I'm going to create water, to make a division between water and land. And I'm going to create plants, and I'm going to create fish, and I'm going to create fowl, and I'm going to create mammals. And they're all going to reproduce after their kind. I am going to impose order upon the chaos. And God is not just acting. He is then, as he acts through this, folks, as he begins to work through this, he begins to make judgments about the morality from our perspective of what he is doing. So that very early in the creation story, to go back to Genesis 1-4, God said, let there be light. This is the very beginning. Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light that it was good. A moral judgment. This was good. And when we get then to verse number 31, right, we have periodically that declaration that it was good. That it was good. Verse number 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God is not just imposing order upon the chaos. He is imposing good order upon that which was chaotic. And he is not just imposing light upon the darkness. The light that he imposes is good light. And then, of course, in verses 26 through 30, we have the creation of man. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Right? Because everything is made after its likeness, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And let me just pause there to make this note, because the question periodically, why use the word replenish? But it is simply the word that means fill or populate. To us, to replenish implies that there had been something that has been depleted. Right? So you had a glass of water, and you drank it, and now it needs to be replenished. But that is not really the meaning of the Hebrew word. It doesn't mean, right? In other words, folks, it doesn't mean that God created a world and all the living things that were on that world died out and now they need to be replenished because that just isn't the meaning of the Hebrew word. It means fill. Go out and fill the earth. Replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of the tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And every beast of the earth, every fowl of the air, everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And so God created man. And we'll, we'll obviously we will spend probably more than one week talking about that. 
What does it mean that he made us in his image? And why would he make anything in his image? We'll talk about that. We will, we will return to that. But here we are. We are part of the creation. We are the, we are the last of the creation. And, and again, I don't want to bog down into this, but I just, I just would argue that this is what the Bible pre- is presenting to us, folks. When we, we back up and paint the bigger picture, it is not uncommon for people to argue that mankind is God's greatest creation. I do not think so. I do not think so. I think that Isaiah 14 is very clear that God's greatest creation was Lucifer. And I think that Ephesians 3 is very clear that part of the reason God created us was because of the rebellion of Lucifer. So that what God actually did is create lower life forms, us, that he might redeem. And we would enjoy something that his higher life forms, angels, would never enjoy. Now that would just be my understanding of the scripture, but you will no doubt read many people who argue that we are the pinnacle of God's creation. But again... I just don't think this. I just don't think the scriptures let us go there. And and this is just a side note, right? Because I mean, I just really think that's what the scriptures are teaching. But but mankind doesn't need anything else to give him a higher sense of value, or to inflate his sense of worth. We we already think very highly of ourselves. To think of ourselves as the best that God could do when He created is is, I, I think, counterproductive. But anyway, I just, I just think that's what the text of Scripture teaches. When, I think that when God said of Lucifer, he sealed up the sum, I think the point he was making that he is the pinnacle of what God could create. Unparalleled for beauty. Unparalleled for ability. Unparalleled for intellect. And then he revolted, and we exist in part. Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> to be put on display before those principalities and powers. So that this is what the psalmist is getting at when he asks the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast create, made him a little lower than the angels. And then Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And then Jesus is ultimately elevated above the angels, which is the place of exaltation that we will enjoy. Anyway, so I I digress there. That's more about man than about the creation, right? So there is a declaration or the proclamation of creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then there is to us this explanation of the process that he followed. That he spoke and things came into existence, but not haphazardly. There is a system, there is a regimentation, there is a structure, there is order, there is not chaos, there is not darkness, at least unbridled darkness, unbridled chaos. And by the way, folks, right? I mean, we will, we will get to this, right? On that great big planet, there is one relatively small parcel plotted out called the Garden of Eden. And the plan is that Adam and Eve will then duplicate the Garden of Eden across the face of the planet. 
That is their mandate. But again, we will come to that. And then that brings us to Genesis chapter 2. And, and, a, and I don't want to say it's unfortunate, but Genesis chapter 2 does not really introduce a separate thought. It continues on in, in the line of the creation. And so, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And so, on the seventh day, God rests. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So, so there, is, right, there is the end and there is the seventh day. And God rested because he was finished. Chapter 2 and verse number 1. God wasn't resting because he was tired. He was resting because he was done. And his rest, verse number two, was rest from the work of creation because God continued to do the work of sustaining. He continues the work of sustaining his creation to this day. He took no rest from that. He rested because he was done creating. He was done with the work of creating. And so then he blessed and set aside the seventh day. So there is, right, the proclamation of the creation and the process of the creation. And then what happens, folks, is that the rest of the Bible really serves to fill out the purpose of the creation. If I could continue the alliteration. Proclamation, process, purpose. Why did God do this? And there are a variety of reasons that are given. I'm not sure that my list is even exhaustive, but here are some of the things that God ties to his creation. First of all is this, and it's the most simplest, this is our home. God exists outside of time, space, and matter, but we do not. And earth is our home. It is the place where we live. And it is, folks, we understand this, it is the only habitable place that there is in all of God's creation. I mean, unbelieving scientists may spend billions of dollars in more than their lifetime trying to find life on other planets, but if the Bible is true, there isn't life on other planets. And I don't want to get into this, folks, but I mean, do you, do you really understand that? That if there's genuinely life on other planets that God is working to redeem, then he is lying to us. It just cannot be. We are it. We are it. All the hosts of heaven, all that the stars there are, and all that the planets there might be, and all the galaxies there might be, we're the only place where there is life. This is our home it is also we know this from in fact let's take a minute and turn to it I'm going to have to move now very quickly but if you'll turn to psalm number 19 a psalm that we all know and love the creation is God's voiceless sermon 
about his glory and his power. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. And then if you'll notice, and I'm not looking to get into a big fight with our translation, folks, but there are a lot of supplied words in verse number 3. But I think the intent of the Hebrew is this. No speech. No language. Their voice is not heard. The sun speaks volumes, but it never says anything. The moon speaks volumes, but it never says anything. The stars are trumpeting the glory of God, but they don't say anything. This is, I think, what the psalmist is arguing. The creation is a voiceless sermon. This universe, and God will come back to this, folks. God will come back to this. The, the universe that we inhabit, inhabit is a voiceless Test, not a silent, but a voiceless testimony to not only the existence of God, but to his glory and his power and his majesty. And it is the basis of his authority over us. I'm just going to give you the references for the sake of time. Isaiah 45, 9 is one. And God chastises people for contending with their maker. In Romans one twenty five, the world that we are inhabiting, and I would argue that America is a country that is living under the judgment of Romans one twenty five. we worship and serve the creature more than the creator. We are earth worshipers. I hope that's not true of us. But we are earth worshipers. We're the greatest of all idolaters, the greatest of all pagans. We worship the earth. Oh, great climate change, please do not affect us. And again, folks, I just don't have the time to develop this, but our founding fathers, although they were far from good, solid believers in many instances, were men who were thoroughly committed to a Christian understanding of the world. And this is what drove their insistence upon property rights and their protection from government, was their understanding of the relate. God created the earth, it's his. And for anybody, and this, by the way, folks, is why evolution is such a big deal, because evolution is not about science, it's about power. And if the world just evolved, then I have removed myself from being under the thumb of the one who made me. But that is the Bible position. What right does God have to tell me what to do? Well, since I formed you, I think I have every right would be God's position. Gave you a place to live. Air to breathe, water to drink, food to eat, time to live. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's reasonable that you answer to me. But folks, the creation is also a consolation to God's people. And let me just read to you these verses quickly. Isaiah 40, 28 and 29. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator, 
of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. To them that have no might, he increases strength. So to those who are believers, the fact that our God can speak a world into existence and not draw a labored breath in the process is a great consolation. Or Jeremiah 33, 2 and 3, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name, call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. So that great prayer passage, Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee, is rooted in the fact that God is the creator of heaven and earth. His creation is a consolation to his people. And then let me ask you to turn, if you would please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that, it, that I have provided an exhaustive list. But I've tried to touch on some of the highlights of the way God uses His creation. Right? There's this process. He created a world that was dark, without form, without substance. But He was there, hovering over it, attentive to it. And then he spoke to it, light and order. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to, hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the, lest the, light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Boom. See, that creation is a preview, hath shined in our hearts. See, folks, the order doesn't just exist at the beginning of the creation. The the order is the pattern. Every one of us was born into this world in spiritual darkness, and every one of us by nature is chaotic and unproductive. And then it is the work of God to bring light and order. This is what he is doing. This is how he operates. So that, folks, the very creation... Right, the very creation. We get to Genesis one thirty one, and God looks at all that He has done, and it is very good, and nobody has died, and nobody has sinned, and no foul has been committed. The whole thing has as its perspective that man will be a fallen creature. It is previewing that. This world was created, and with the explanation for that creation has fallen man in mind. And then finally, and I really do need to stop, <clears throat> that creation is a preview of God's future plan. We will talk more about this when we get into being made in the image of God. right? But what comes at the very end, folks, Revelation 21.1, is a new heaven and a new earth. Not a return to the 
to the way it was before the first earth was created. But a new heaven and a new earth. And and again, we will get to this. But folks, from from the beginning of the creation, from that moment, Genesis 1-1, when in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth, it has an eternal significance not only for us, but for him as well. So we're going to stop there, and we'll be back at 11 o'clock. Thank you.